I believe humans save people. And I think that no algorithm will ever save a human being. And what an algorithm will do, if it's, if it's a good one, is tell the humans who to focus their effort on. Well, hey there, and welcome, Poemcasters. We have the distinct honor of welcoming Dr. Donna Edelson here with us. She's here from the University of Chicago, and uh, we were so enamored with her Grand Rounds that we decided to invite her onto the show. So welcome. Thanks for having me. So I wrote this big, long intro for you, but actually, let's start with you telling us a little bit about yourself. So I am clinically a hospitalist at the University of Chicago, uh, where I'm also a researcher and a quality improvement expert. I do a lot of work in inpatient quality and safety. In addition to that, I also am an entrepreneur now, having launched a company that's commercializing some of the research that I've done at the university. And then I'm a mom and a wife and, you know, all the other good stuff. So writing this episode was actually a tremendous challenge for us because you're kind of an expert in a lot of things. Sepsis, predictive analytics scores, big data, harnessing your EHR. That's not even to mention cardiac arrest and all those things. So I think we'll start focusing on sepsis and predictive analytics and go from there. I think at least in the foam world, uh, your paper that came out in ATS. Hold on. Do you, are, are you, are you foam uh, familiar? No. So, uh, aware. yeah, we, we can't just assume that everybody knows what foam is. Uh, so foam, it, it's called, you're, you're famous by the way on, on foam, uh, you and Chirpec and, and everybody. Yeah, so foam, foam is this huge medical community online on Twitter, blog posts and things like that. It's called free open access medical education. Okay. And it's really a bunch of nerds like us and, mm-hmm. you know, PAs, physicians, NPs who all kind of get together and share free medical education Are resources. Are you suggesting that I just got out nerded? Uh, <laughs> <I, laughs> because... That's impressive. No one's ever done that to me before. I'm welcoming you to the community. Okay. Yeah. That'd be a great fit. Okay. <laughs> so, but your, your paper that came on ATS last year with, with Chirpec made a lot of uh, buzz in the foam world, particularly because of the timing. It came out right after the sepsis 3.0 definitions. So people were kind of hungry to compare QSOFA to everything else we had. So that QSOFA SIRS versus Muse and News paper really kind of hit home with a lot of people. So what's your main takeaway from that study? And kind of tell us some background about how that study came about. Sure. Right now, we have two different ways of detecting patients. We have the sepsis scores that are primarily SIRS and then QSOFA jumped into the picture. And then we have the more traditional approaches, which is MUSE, NEWS, and then some of the more complicated machine learning analytics that we're now seeing come out. And our general issue had been with SIRS for a long time. Prior to that publication, we had published a study showing that SIRS was really inadequate in that it's it's really sensitive, so it will pick up anybody who turns out to have an adverse event and, and be infected. The problem is it's really not specific. 15% of the patients will meet SIRS criteria on admission to the ward by 48 hours, 50% of the patients have met SIRS criteria at least once. And if you've been there a week, you're at over 85% of the patients will have met SIRS criteria at some point. 
QSOFA came out in that environment where I think people were hungry for something better than SIRS. And so QSOFA was data-driven, which I love. Um, I think the problem with it was that it tried to conform to the same format as SIRS did, which is super simple and everybody can do it simply in their head. And so because of that, it ended up as overly simple and definitely more specific. So it fixed the specificity issue. If if you're meeting QSOFA criteria, that's bad. The, the problem is lots of people will have adverse events and be infected and never meet QSOFA criteria. It was a trade-off of sensitivity for specificity without really solving the problem. What we found in that paper was that SIRS is the worst. <laughs> I think most of them would agree with you. And yet it's the most widely used. Right. Uh, QSOFA is better. Uh, and it's comparable to Muse, which is about the same, but maybe a little bit better. And um, and Muse was the best. Do you have any opinions on the combination of using SIRS and QSOFA to inform clinical decision making? I haven't looked at it specifically, although there is other data in the field that when you combine some of these things together, they do tend to get a little bit better. But they're not. It, it'd be hard to combine. QSOFA answers. That's one of the ideas that people kind of floated after reading your article was maybe we continue to use SIRS as our early warning system if that's what we have in our hospital. And then when the provider comes to the bedside, they're calculating a QSOFA to help them decide how sick that patient truly is. Any thoughts on that? I I guess I would say, why do that at all? News is better than both of them. Mm -hmm. So if you want to do something simple in your head, calculate news. news. What, What I loved from your grand rounds is, do you really need a score to inform yourself that hypotension, altered mental status, and tachypnea is bad? Or can you just kind of know that. Right. Uh, So where does this leave the sepsis 3.0 definitions for sepsis in your mind? What are you using to diagnose a patient with sepsis? I don't I don't think we have to be prescriptive about which of the tools we're going to use. So if you're using news and you have a news of greater than five and you suspect infection, then you should be worried about Mm -hmm. sepsis in that patient. If um if it's Muse and your threshold is four, whatever it is, you need to your patient. You need has to be both sick and you have to suspect infection in them. I think that's one of the things that's been interesting talking to you is that I think a lot of the world wants to pit these four things against each other and talking to you. It kind of doesn't matter. Just pick which one you've picked and do it well. Would you say that's fair? Yeah. Yes, I would say know what the trade off is to whatever you're picking. Um, I can understand why some people would want SIRS. Folks who who come from a place of, I don't want to miss any patients, will pick SIRS. The problem with that is they're going to end up with a lot of false alarms. If false alarms aren't an issue for, for your medical center, then you don't have to worry about it, and SIRS is fine. If, on the other hand, you're trying to be as efficient as possible, then you want to pick the best tool that you can. And so pick Mm -hmm. the tool with the highest AUC that you can feasibly pull off in your health center. So for our uh, listeners out there, AUC area under the curve, uh, can you give us like a quick elevator pitch on, on the AUC? Sure. The area under the curve means that... If I pick at random two patients from the population, one of whom is septic and one of whom isn't, that if the area of the curve is 90%, 
90% of the time, the patient who's septic will have a higher score than the patient who isn't septic. So a, a score of 0.5 means your tool is a total coin flip. It's no better than a coin toss. A perfect predictor has an area under the curve of 1.0. So we've talked about Muse, News, SIRS, QSOFA. So tell us what your company is doing. So my company, uh, Quant HC, is commercializing our analytics that have come out of the University of Chicago. So, so eCart is our primary analytic, which does risk of clinical deterioration. And by that, I mean your probability of going to the ICU, having a cardiac arrest, or dying in the next eight hours. And um, what, what we do is we pull vital signs and lab data with some demographics in real time. Anytime a new piece of data comes in, we update that score. That score then drops patients into one of three or four categories, depending on how you want to use it, um, and then essentially allows us to sort all the patients in the hospital from sickest to least sick. So this score isn't just for sepsis, which is what's popularizing the other scores. It's more of a kind of understanding critical illness. Correct. We're, what we're doing is looking at sick or not sick first. That's if that's the question I want to answer on everybody. And then if, if they're not sick, I don't, I'm done. I can, I can do my routine care. I can handle everything as I currently am. On the other hand, if the patient's sick, that's when I want to start to worry about, could they potentially be septic? There's no point in worrying about sepsis in a patient who's not sick. Mm -hmm. So most of my uh, training has been in detecting patients who are sick or not sick. And I feel that most people practicing in critical care medicine feel the same, that they've been trained to recognize sick or not sick. Uh, I think you have a really interesting take on humans in seeing abnormal things. As human beings, we have a natural bias to normalize the abnormal. Like this is her baseline, this is where she lives, or he lives. Oh yeah. And mm -hmm. tachycardia, that's mm -hmm. that one's my favorite. Someone's heart rate's up. We have a thousand reasons why. You know, my favorite, they're anxious. They're in pain. <laughs> they're febrile. All reasons why someone might be tachycardic. And so then we don't have to worry about it as opposed to they're septic. Sure. It's one of the reasons why we see patients have adverse events, especially early in the year in academic uh, environments. We'll see people who were to Kipnik in the hospital, and the team will say they're anxious. Mm -hmm. Well, everyone's anxious when they can't breathe, but they'll think that the tachypnea is from the anxiety as opposed to the anxiety being from the tachypnea mm -hmm. or from, from whatever is underlying it. Your, your team has done a really cool thing of finding adverse events like cardiac arrest and looking back on some of the events that have led up to that. Can you talk some about how you guys started getting interested in looking at this data? Sure. I come at this research from the cardiac arrest research world. All of my initial work as a fellow was in CPR quality. And I had the fortune of working in an institution where we had a lot of cardiac arrests, and that made it a really good place to study CPR quality and have and have good ends for for those studies. And we did some really great work around improving CPR quality that I'm really proud of. But as I was 
analyzing every single one of these cardiac arrests, it became really clear when I would look through these charts that a lot of them shouldn't have arrested in the first place. I'm delighted if we can improve outcomes once they do arrest. Moving the moving survival from a, in cardiac arrest from 15% to 25% is great. That's really important, except... If the patient shouldn't have arrested in the first place, their mortality is completely different, right? The patients who arrest in the hospital have an 80% mortality. On the other hand, patients who get seen by rapid response in the hospital have a 25% mortality. And that's bad. That's really bad. But there's a complete difference between a 25% mortality and an 80% mortality. So I really wanted to start looking uphill and see what we could predict and then hopefully prevent. So it's one thing to focus on CPR quality, which is important. It's something we all want to talk about. We want to minimize time off the chest and so on and so forth. But some of those arrests should have never happened in the first place. How is your system actually predicting these things? So we're using vital signs and lab data. The current version of it that's that's up and live in most hospitals is using 33 variables. So some demographics, mostly labs and vitals. Um, and anytime a new piece of data comes in, it will calculate a probability and drop somebody into a different bucket. And then depending on how it's set up in the hospital, that whether that sends an automatic page out to the rapid response team or physician or whether it's showing up on a dashboard on a, on a, a telemetry type monitor, all possible. So using 33 variables versus the, what, seven and muse news? Yeah, it's mm-hmm. a big difference. How did you arrive to that number? For that version, we took everything that we was routinely collected and, and that we knew was reliable. So, um, the, so the routine vital signs, your heart rate, respiratory rate, oxygen saturation, et cetera, all your, your CBC, your BMP, and your... LFTs we included. We included age as well. Um, Things that we intentionally left out, urine output because it's not reliably collected, oxygen delivery method because it's not reliably tracked. Um, We didn't put lactate in that version of the model because most patients don't have a lactate, and instead we use this as a tool to decide who should have their lactate drawn. And so all of those are decisions that get made before we build the analytic. And so after the uh, implementation of eCart at University of Chicago, two questions. What has been the staff's reception of the warning system, and what sorts of outcomes have you seen after implementing it? The at University of Chicago it was implemented with the primary responder being the rapid response team. So they're the only ones that have con- consistent and reliable access to it at, in the current implementation form. So they have an iPad app, they have a, a desktop version, and then they're the ones who get real-time pages whenever a patient crosses over into the red threshold. Initially, the reaction was mixed. There are people who love new technology and just really believe in it and have no problem wrapping I, their head around it. I've never <laughs> met anybody like that. Right. <laughs> would it be you, would it? Uh, maybe. And then there are the people who don't like anything new 
and have a hard time understanding the math behind it and feel like it's voodoo. People like that get won over the second they have a good save. We had a we had a patient who was a young woman who had a chest tube in, and the surgical team had rounded in the morning and had disconnected the chest tube, and they thought it was time, and they'd walked away and gone back to the OR like surgeons do. Mm-hmm. And the nurses had watched the patient who's... Uh, start to breathe a little heavier and get a little bit more anxious. And then Eckhart flagged and the alert went off and the rapid response team showed up and patient was full of fluid and was breathing in the 40s and hypoxic. It was a super easy fix, right? Just reconnected the chest tube and patient was fine. But that's one where the nurses didn't call the rapid response team. They were sort of watching and uncomfortable. But again, it was a young patient and as you guys know, young patients tolerate all sorts of incredible physiologic abnormalities before they don't. Well, so some some hospitals also have put it on a big TV screen in the unit and different ways to implement it and added pathways and those different things. Do you want to talk about that? Sure. Uh, sure. So so that's, I would say, the, the rapid response team focus model. The other model is to make the the primary nurse, the the main user. And in that case, you put it on a monitor, feed it into an existing teletracking board, for example, or put all the e-card scores on the dashboard for the unit so that the charge nurse can be watching it. And in that case, then the nurses on the unit are the, are the initial screen. The benefit of that is you have more capacity. You can monitor both the yellows and the reds and you may even be able to use a lower threshold for your moderate risk because your capacity is greater can uh can you do some myth busting for us okay so uh you believe that algorithms save people is that correct i do not believe that algorithms by themselves save people what is it you believe i believe humans save people and I think that no algorithm will ever save a human being. And what an algorithm will do, if it's, if it's a good one, is tell the humans who to focus their effort on. I need the human to show up and, and agree, sick or not sick, and then do the right thing. So my goal is to make the humans more efficient. Otherwise, the humans have to go look at every single patient. What I want to do is tell them, go focus your attention here, If you have more time, here's the next batch that you can look at. So stratifying who needs the most attention, and if if they don't, then who can you move on to after that? Correct. High-risk patients need more care and more assessment than low-risk patients do. But eventually, as we keep implementing all of this big data, we're going to be obsolete, right? I mean, eventually, if we have machine learning and AI, we're going to become like IBM Watson. Certainly, some of the stuff we do, we don't need to be doing. Uh, At this point, AI is not good enough to do care. We can bucket them, and we're pretty good at that, but it still requires the clinician to go and validate that. And, and still, at this point, we really don't have data on what the right thing to do yet is. So while we know who's sick and not sick, we're still not sure, are we giving 30 cc's per kg or is 27 
cc's per kg the right amount and do we is three hours the right number or should it be 2.35 hours all things that we'll be able to do and sure at some point you can imagine that well it'll be automated enough that honestly everybody can be hooked up to the iv and it can all be pre-programmed and we'll just deliver your fluid bolus exactly when (laughs) without having to wait for a human being to do it but i think we're a long way away from that right now I love what your company's doing with predictive analytics and finally actually harnessing this EHR, EMR data that we have. I think that's a lot of our biggest pet peeves of this really expensive EHR program that most hospitals have purchased. What's your thoughts on big data in general and, and harnessing it? And if you were a hospital administrator, what would you be looking to do with your data over the next few years? We need to be using our data because right now we're just parking it in storage in our EHR and not, we can't even, most of us can't even access it if we wanted to. Uh, Those that are more advanced have figured out how to extract it and put it in a clinical data research warehouse and can start to do some simple analytics. I think we need to prioritize what are the problems that we want to solve, and then we should be applying our data to that. Um, My general view on analytics is don't develop an analytic unless you know what you're going to do with it once it's done. So Mm -hmm. we can we can predict all sorts of things. But if we don't have an intervention that we're going to do, that's a waste of time right now. So I like the deterioration one, because I I can send the rapid response team and I can screen for sepsis. And I like sepsis because I because I have a bundle that I can apply if I know a patient's infected and sick. Um, and so start with start with what we do know, the interventions that improve outcomes, and then let's develop analytics around those. The thing that I'm really interested in talking about is kind of like a shout out to Guy Raz of how you built this. You set out and ventured off to make your own company. Is that true? I'm in the process of doing that right now. It's, yes, probably the scariest thing I've ever done. When did you decide that you wanted to be an entrepreneur? I never decided I wanted to be an entrepreneur. (laughs) I think I still haven't decided that I want to be an entrepreneur. I decided that I couldn't sit on this anymore, that people were dying in hospitals and that writing papers and publishing them in scientific journals wasn't adequate. And that if I was going to get up and leave my family and go work on really important stuff every day, it was imperative to me that people be implementing it in their hospitals. And so I came at it as a reluctant entrepreneur, feeling like if I really, if I want to make a difference, I'm going to have to package it up and, and deliver it to people in a way that they can consume it. And it turns out that the commercial route is much faster than the academic route. Can you kind of talk about your journey of who or what pushed you to finally make that step? Because I'm sure you felt that way for a while. What what was the tipping point? Well, I was in an academic institution, and there's a lot of fear about conflicts of interest in, in there. And my I had been trained that... Academia was the the natural progression of everything I'd always done. It was you know go to school, get good grades, get get into medical school, do well, get into a, a good residency program, do a prestigious fellowship, publish in in high ranking academic journals, write grants, get more money, rinse and repeat. 
And then there's this fear that if you commercialize anything, you're dirty. And then you have conflicts of interest and suddenly you won't be able to do those other things. So all this stuff that was my livelihood, grants, papers, my academic street cred, I was putting at risk. So it actually took me quite a while to get over that because if I fail, it's not just that I fail and I don't make a successful company. I run the risk that I can't go back to academia. The stakes are high. Yeah. And my husband is uh, much more entrepreneurially <laughs> focused than I am. Doesn't subscribe to those same fears and never really understood why I wasn't just willing to go try it. So I, I there was a lot of internal pressure to just go do it. What's the worst thing that'll happen? So you fail. You're like uh, utter failure. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Which I kept saying. He's you know he's he you know he kept saying you're not going to be hungry. Wait we're fine financially so what do you have to what do you have to um fear and i said yeah that i'm a that that i will fail i've never failed at anything in my whole entire life and this is the first thing i've ever done that i could actually fail at so what's your day-to-day life like now that you own a company still doing research and still practicing a little bit too right yeah um so so now i'm working 40% at the university which is a mix of quality improvement, research, and clinical. So I'm, I'm there two days a week, except when I do a, a two-week stint of clinical work. I am, And I'm spending most of the rest of the time working on the company, which turns out to be a lot of phone calls and quite a bit of travel. So I'm certain that we have a lot of listeners who are in the medical field, equally interested in becoming entrepreneurs in their own endeavor. For those of them in that stage, kind of contemplating what you were of, do I leave? Do I start? Do I mix the two? How do I balance all of this? What do you have to say to them? I think the difference between entrepreneurs and non-entrepreneurs is entrepreneurs are willing to fail at stuff. So you have to be willing to do that. Whereas physicians are probably the opposite in general. Physicians are tend to be the most risk adverse people <laughs> around, right? <laughs> healthcare is set up to not take risk. We think in healthcare, do you want to be innovative or reliable? You want both, but there's a trade-off, right? Entrepreneurs want to be innovative and and don't worry about reliability. We tend to favor reliability. And people who are drawn to healthcare are go there because they'll never be unemployed. They're they're working on stuff that's really important and they want to control things that are otherwise difficult to control. And I will say that I for one am I I put myself on the far end of risk adverse. I'm such a control freak that I've spent the last decade in my life trying to control death. (laughs) I'm building predictive analytics so that I know when people are going to deteriorate so I can stop that from happening. That isn't somebody who's comfortable taking huge amounts of risk. And so that's actually been a training point for me. And, And I've had to work against that. And I've had to draw inspiration from other people who don't come from that training. So know who you are recognize, be honest about that, and know that if you're somebody who t- 
tends to be more risk averse. If you want to go that, A, it's going to be uncomfortable and you have to be able to lean into that discomfort and then you're going to need to draw on inspiration from people who are comfortable with that. I would love to wrap up with just some rapid fire brief questions. All right. Um, three hour bundle or no three hour bundle? Today, three hour bundle, yes, it's the best we have. Uh, full 30cc per kg fluid or not full 30cc per kg fluid? 30cc per kg until we have better data. Intubation during cardiac arrest, LMA during cardiac arrest, or just plain bag valve mask ventilation in 30 to 2? Depends. I go intubation if you can do it without breaking chest compressions, and then I can have end tidal CO2. Do you ever stop chest compressions to intubate? Yes, if I'm not able to bag or use an LMA. Stop for a pulse check or don't stop for a pulse check? Stop for a rhythm check, but don't feel for a pulse if your end tidal is less than 20. So end tidal on everybody. On everybody. Always. Yes, unless I have an A-line. Are you cooling your in-hospital cardiac arrest patients? Sometimes. Can you clarify? Yeah, so um, so cool an in-hospital arrest patient if it looks like an out-of-hospital arrest patient. I'll correct and say targeted temperature management mm-hmm. rather than cooling. My nice question. So 36 at this point. So 33 if there's no contraindications at all, 36 if there's any contraindication. Who should run codes in the hospital? Whoever has the most experience doing it and is the best trained. Ultrasound during cardiac arrest or you're not a fan? I don't trust people to use ultrasound reliably without breaking chest compressions. If you can use ultrasound without interrupting chest compressions, I'm okay with it. But I don't need it for the most part. With end tidal and high quality CPR, I'll, you can do the ultrasound once we get ROSC back. Mechanical CPR or manual CPR? Again, depending on the setting, I go manual if you can do it really well. If you can't do it really well, mechanical. Or if, you're, if it's going to be a really long time and you're bridging to ECMO, mechanical. If you're in a long transport and you just don't have enough bodies around, mechanical. In the in-hospital setting, we do incredible CPR. I don't necessarily need a mechanical device. And I worry that the time to put on that mechanical device, unless it's really well choreographed, is going to end up with interruptions that are worse than what I currently have. Yeah, that's what I've experienced as well. It can be done. The Norwegians have done amazing work in in transitioning from really good manual CPR to mechanical CPR. I've seen the video. It's amazing. It's definitely possible to do, but but you have to train people to do that. And if you can't do it, you risk inserting a two-minute pause in chest compressions while people fumble around with a device, and that's Mm -hmm. not worth it. Should all hospitals have a rapid response team? Every hospital should have highly skilled, highly trained providers who are available to respond to deteriorating patients outside the ICU. Who those people are, I think the data hasn't answered the question. Should they be um, out of staffing, free from other patient responsibilities? I think they should be available and out of, out of other staffing. I think you need dedicated FTEs to be able to do that because otherwise, not only are they putting other patients at risk, but they, everybody else starts to not want to bother them. Mm-hmm. And so they will 
self-triage away from rapid response. They don't want to burden the rapid response team. Well, it's been such an honor to have you on the show. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for the invitation. Well, Pumpcasters, thanks for tuning in. Until next time, keep breathing, keep streaming, and keep reading.